Hey guys, welcome to Mommy's Crime Time. It's Jenny, and this video is going to be my second part of the review and overall synopsis of Letters from Christopher by Sherilyn Cadle. The book is kind of hard to find right now, has been pulled from a lot of outlets. I believe it's still available on Amazon. That is where I got mine. There are allegations of plagiarism, so it's kind of hard to get your hands on. And if you didn't want to buy the book, I just wanted to give you kind of what you would get from it. If you haven't watched my first video, which covers the first 10 chapters, you're going to want to watch that one first because it goes over, you know, the things leading up to where we are. The only thing about the book that I'm not real fond of is the fact that it jumps around a lot. So you, you hear the same things sometimes repeatedly in other parts. It's almost like she loses track of what she was talking about and jumps around. So at times it's pretty hard to read, but we're going to start with chapter 11 and chapter 11 is home for the last time. And in this chapter, she's basically talking about, um, Shanann coming home for the last time from that trip to Arizona, what the weather was like that day. So she's kind of like leading up the drama to it and stuff like that. Talking about how Shanann had no idea about the darkness that she was walking into in the home, obviously. Um, she says that within a few months of approaching Chris Watts, this is Sherilyn Cadle, that he um, decided that he would go ahead and disclose to her what really happened that morning, that he had lied to the FBI, he hadn't told them everything, he had held some things back because he was angry that they came in, did not let him know they were coming and kind of surprised him. So he held things back kind of because he resented that they came. Is this just another tactic for him to stay in the news? I mean, it's like he keeps letting out more and more and more details. Will we ever get the full story? Who knows? Probably not. But this part is where he's going to tell us what he says actually happened. You may have heard in the first um, video, there were some of the things that he did hit on already. But this part is a little heavy, um, kind of graphic in a way. If you are sensitive to these sort of things, you probably don't want to listen to this because it's kind of hard to read it hard here. He said that he felt like God wanted him to put this out. God laid it on his heart. That's why he did it. So he says that, quote, when I finished putting the girls to bed, I walked away and said, that's the last time I'm going to be tucking my babies in. I knew what was going to happen the day before and I did nothing to stop it. So he actually finally admits that the, the murder of the girls was also premeditated, that it wasn't because he snapped or he flew into a rage. He completely and entirely decided he was going to kill them as well. So, his other two confessions, mm -mm. Um, He talks about how they take them to the birthday party. They had played, sang songs, gave them a bath, ate dinner, bedtime stories, you know, all of those things that they did. But none of that still could stop him from what he was going to do in the morning. He says, on August 13th, the morning of, I went to the girls' room first before Shannon and I had our argument. I went into Bella's room then Cece's and used a pillow from their bed to kill them. So he says that he smothered the girls first before he even had the emotional conversation with Shanann. Um, but he says that's why Cece's call of death was smothering where they both were smothered. So who knows? He said that after that, he went to the bedroom to kill Shanann and that after he killed her, he realized the girls were not dead that they woke back up. He didn't know how they woke up, but that Bella's eyes were bruised and both girls like they had been through a trauma. So he didn't strangle them or smother them enough, but he said he thought they were dead, but they weren't. So it made it a lot more, you know, you know, more difficult. It was harder to do because then they were alive and he had transferred them to the batteries. Is this true? I don't know. 
He said that the reason the medical examiner found oxycodone in Shanann's system is because he gave it to her and he thought it would be easier with Nikki if Shanann was not pregnant. Now, he did admit that he gave it to her in North Carolina on the first day of the visit when he came there. He will later retract this part of the statement in the book and say that he did only give it to her once, not twice, and he didn't give it to her the night before. I'll leave that to you to decide. She asked him about the oxy. She said that he told her at first he gave it to her twice, like I just said. Second time was right before he killed her. He said that's why she couldn't fight back. And when she later questioned him again, he said he only gave it to her once. And when she asked him where he got the oxy again, he said that is one of those things that he will take to his death. So still, he's hiding something. He's protecting someone. There's something there that he doesn't want us to know. You know, he doesn't want to incriminate someone else. Who's he protecting? Just to kind of say one quick thing that's not right here in the book is that there was an incident right before the North Carolina trip where he had talked to Nikki on the phone. Nikki hung up the phone, immediately called a drug treatment center, was on the phone for I believe 22 minutes, and then called him right back. So there's speculation of were they afraid of Googling, you know, about the Oxy? Did she call to ask the drug treatment center what oxycodone would do to a pregnant woman? Because we do know they admitted he gave her 80 milligrams in North Carolina. So speculation, but hey. He said that when Shanann started to get drowsy, he knew how to squeeze the jugular veins and cut off blood flow to her brain where she then passed out. He said it felt like it was a long time. But he watched his hands on her neck and he knew that he couldn't take his hands off because if he did, she would just never let him be with Nikki. Again, he says she didn't fight back because she couldn't fight back. Not that she wanted to, but that she couldn't. So why couldn't she? Was she really drugged? You know, why couldn't she fight back? He said that her eyes filled with blood as she looked at him and died. And he knew she was gone when she relieved herself. Dr. Phil said in his podcast, if you haven't listened to it, you should, that he felt this was a way of, of like another way of demeaning her because it's almost like that detail of, you know, her relieving herself. It's kind of like you didn't have to throw that part in. It's like another way of put it, you know, shaming her in a way. I don't know if you see it that way, but then he talks about wrapping her in the sheet. And that's when the girls I came in. And that's when he was, you know, getting everything ready to load them in the car. And he said that he was angry. You want to know why? He was angry because the girls were awake and alive. And he felt anger towards Shannon that, so angry towards her that he could have killed anything that got in his way. So before when he said he never felt anger, really, you know, he felt anger because his kids were alive. He says in reference to the gas can he put into his truck that he doesn't know why he put it in there. He had told the FBI he was thinking about killing himself, but he says, not true. Wasn't going to kill myself. I just told him that because I thought it's what they wanted to hear. He talks about when he was standing in the neighbor's room, Nate, watching the surveillance cam that he had of him loading his truck that he thought everyone could see the girls walk up to me and I put them in the truck and I load them in the back seat. So he was afraid that people could see the girls being put in the truck. He said when it came to Shanann, he didn't feel anything for her. Um, that he talks about after he got to the site is when he decided to smother the girls the second time. So he basically admits that he killed his children twice. The first time it didn't work, so he did it again. And that's when he says that, you know, he dumped Shanann on the ground by the truck walked back, took the blanket from Celeste, which was her New York Yankees jet, um, blanket, 
put it over her head and smothered her. He said he carried her up the stairs, opened the latch, which is kind of hard because how are you holding this child and able to open the latch? Did he set her down? He said in his second confession that he didn't, that he just opened it. He said he lifted her up and he was surprised how easy she went in. He said that he knew he'd never see her again, but he didn't feel anything and he couldn't believe how easy it was to just drop her in and let her go. And he heard a splash as she hit the oil. Then he hits again on how he went back to the truck and, you know, he was doing the same thing to Bella. He said that he couldn't believe how much of a fight she put up. That out of all three, she was the one that put up the biggest fight. We do know that her frenillium was torn. There was a hole there. She had scratches on her um, bottom and places like that, probably from him trying to get her into the hole, that she asked if he was going to do the same thing to her that he did to Celeste, and he told her yes, but he wasn't sure if he said yes, but he thought he said yes, and that he remembers her saying in a sweet, soft voice, Daddy, no, and those were her last words, and those words haunt her or haunt him every day, and I hope to God they do. He said he was so empowered at that time, and, you know, he just had all that strength to do all this, but it was harder to get Bella in the hole, that her arms and shoulders did not want to fit through it, so he had to force her through the hatch. Now, mind you, this hatch is only about eight inches, so imagine a four-year-old child and you trying to shove them in a eight-inch hatch. It's like a circle, eight inches. He said he had to force her through and that they found a piece of her blonde hair on the, the hatch, which is pretty terrible. He said he told the police in other interviews that he didn't have a reason for putting them in separate tanks, you know, or why he put Shanann out into the ground or whatever. And he said he did it on purpose and he wanted to make sure that they were far from Shanann. And the worst part is he put them in the tanks because he wanted to make sure they did not get up again. I don't know what to think about that. I don't know how to explain what could have been going through his mind, how sick you are. They survived the first time you tried to kill them and then you took them out there and did it again. Like, you know, you talk about God and how you found religion and you had these signs from God that you were doing the wrong thing. But why did you not come to your senses if you had really, allegedly, if this is true, already driven 45 minutes with your children in the car and you had already tried to kill them once and they survived? Why would you do it again? You mean to tell me you were in a rage for that long, that you didn't come out of it, that you were, I mean, I don't get it. It does not make sense. But so they wouldn't get up a second time. Um, he says that he went to duck the hole for Shanann. He said the hole did seem a lot deeper than it was. And this part's pretty rough. He says he pulled the sheet or pulled on the sheet. She rolled out and fell into the hole. I think she had given birth. And you do know that in the second confession, he said, no, she had not given birth. She was, no, it was not like that. She had not had the baby yet. Now he says that he thinks she had. He said that she laid or landed face down. And he was so angry with her that he chose not to move her position or change how she landed. So he didn't really care how she landed. He just covered her up and went on about his business. He was mad again. Maybe as Dr. Phil said, that's another way of demeaning her again was, you know, she fell into that hole and I just left her face down. I was so angry with her. He says then that he realized he murdered his daughters twice. He doesn't understand how it happened and why they were not dead the first time. He goes on to say that he felt no remorse. And after he killed his family, he drove away, and Nikki texted him to look up a song by Metallica called Battery, 
If you've never heard that song, you should probably look it up to see what the lyrics are. If Nikki really did ask him to look listen to this song, then obviously she knew more than she's pretending because the lyrics of the song are very telling. So after that, he went to work like it was a normal day. Chapter 12. Sorry, I have a bit of a cold, so is the morning of the murders and he talks about how on august 13th that shadan's friend who dropped off the house the night before had came to the house because she had not heard from shannon that morning again it's kind of repetitive we already know all this information that she knew the front door code she put it in but the door wouldn't open because it had a latch to keep the girls from getting out so the the house was locked from the inside out she could see shannon's shoes and this is when she started trying to get with chris you know where is she? And he was, you know, basically telling her, you know, oh, she's fine. She went to a play date. Well, Nicole knew that Shanann had a doctor's appointment at 10 a.m. So she took it upon herself to drive to that doctor's office, found out Shanann was a no-show. She then went back to the house. She pulled her car up to the garage. She stood or had her son stand on top of the car, look in the windows, saw that the car was still there and that the car seats were in there. So at that point she knew that there was no way that Shanann had gone on a play date. Um, the next part is, you know, when Chris arrived, he allowed the police to go into the home. They're doing a walkthrough and things like that. He told them they had free reign, do whatever they wanted. Um, then they go into the, you know, there's talking a lot about, you know, the medications were there, stuff like that, things we already knew. And then the one part we've all kind of been curious about is that the girls had the Jack and Jill bathrooms, you know, where their bedroom were on each side and there was two doors into that bathroom. Well, those doors were locked. Chris mysteriously just produced the key out of his pocket. And he said that they kept that door locked at all times because the girls would go in there and play in the bathroom at night and things like that. But the officers noted that there was no water in the toilet. And that has led to a lot of speculation because in his second confession, he even asked the police about the pipes. Like, why are you worried about the pipes in the house? You don't live there anymore. You're in prison for the rest of your life. Why are you worried about the pipes? So that goes back to, was there a bigger plot, bigger plan? Did he not get to finish out what he was doing? That sort of thing. Um... He tells the officer that he woke up around 5 a.m., had this emotional conversation. Well, then when the um, police show up again and the CBI comes to a second search of the home, that's when they notice a strong odor of cleaning chemicals and they remark the house was spotless and the carpet had noticeable vacuum lines. So this was him, you know, staging the scene, covering up evidence, that sort of stuff. Next is chapter 13. It's the days after. That's what happened with him and the entire situation in the days after. It says that on the night of the 13th, after he had just killed his family, he turned off all the lights in the house. Darkness. And he went to bed. Because, you know, I'm sure it's probably easy to sleep the night after you murder your family. And he woke up and he realized that all the lights in the house were on. He knew he had turned them off before lying down. So the first thing that came to his mind, you know, was, wow, what a reality check. You know, how these lights turned on. Um, I believe I read somewhere that the officer also verified that the house was dark and the lights came on. So there were other things that happened in the house that were mysterious in the time since then where people have said they saw things or lights have come on and things like that. They talk about him waking up early in the morning on the 14th, lying by himself, feeling alone. Um, he was creeped out about the lights. He thought to himself, how could he justify, you know, that his family was gone, but all he felt was relief. That's very telling as a man that all you felt was relief. He realized he had a headache, so he went to the kitchen and he made himself something to eat. Because, you know, it's so easy to eat after you've murdered your family. 
the police call. He tells them he doesn't know anything, that sort of thing. Um, then he's worried about Nikki. What will Nikki think when Nikki finds out? You know, what's what, what's he going to tell Nikki? Because that's so important. They, they decide to, you know, release the missing persons report because before they just didn't know if Shannon had kind of just left with the girls or what was going on. So they, that's when they do this whole, you know, missing person thing. And that as part of their search for the girls is when they found out about his affair. Um, he was trying to decide if he should go to work the next day because your family's missing. And even if you did it and if I were in that position where I knew I had done something so incredibly wrong, I wouldn't be thinking about going to work because you should be worried about, okay, if I go to work, people are going to think I just don't care about my family. But he honestly did not even care to a point that he was saying, oh, maybe I should just go to work. So um, then he talks about how the police came in and brought the canines to search the home. They did alert in you know, different rooms that they alerted on trauma. You can watch those videos on YouTube of the dogs inside the home. That's when he did the famous front porch interview where he made a complete, honestly, ass of himself, where it was obvious he had no emotion, did not care, all that family was gone. He even smiled in the interview, so if you haven't seen that, you should watch it, although most of us really probably have. Then there's a part that she goes into about when, you can see this on YouTube if you go to canine search of what's home, giggle. That's all you got to type in, where they're going to a closet, they hear a little girl giggle, and it's very clear, and they can't figure out what it is. The officers heard it. You can tell they're kind of shaken by it. But they did disprove that from what I understand, that there was a doll in a bag in there that made that noise, that it wasn't, you know, anything like that. He talks about how there, he had sent Shanann a picture of a princess doll about three foot long. And she even posted it on her Facebook, and the doll's laying on the couch, and it's covered with a blanket, like the whole doll except its feet. So he took the picture, and he sent it to her. And then she posted it, and he said this is one of the things he did during the time he was having thoughts of planning the murders. So this is kind of like a way of sending her this picture, acting like, oh, it's funny, but at the same time, he talks about talking to Nikki later that day, and she was asking, oh, where's your family? Because I'm sure she had no idea. Um, he denied everything. He could tell by her voice that she wasn't believing everything he was saying. Um, basically, yet again, he's ready to worry about Nikki then she shows up to the police department ready to tell you know her side what was going on and basically again playing herself as a victim because she's such a victim in this um the interview is very one-sided you get to hear her talk all about how you know this is affecting her and what she thinks it's she will not even say the name Shanann if you listen to her videos or the, the interviews you she struggles when they ask her to say the name so it's very telling that she can't even say her name she refers to her as her in almost every video. He says that later that day a big storm blew in and that the storm was out there, the wind was blowing, and he noticed that three of the neighbor's empty garbage cans were lying in his front yard. He said it seemed symbolic for throwing away the family because it was three trash cans. Um, then it goes on to talk about how he talked to her parents, he talked to his parents, told his dad he should come, his dad was gonna fly in, and then that he, he had to go to the police station that day because he was going to do the polygraph the night after he picked his dad up. Talks about how he went for the interview that night at 8 p.m. He did not stay in the house again. The night before that was the very last time he ever slept in his home. Chapter 14 is interviews. And it's annoying because it's not just, you know, she... 
it's all repetitive. Like we've all, we all already know this talks about Nikki meeting with the CBI and only thing that I've seen in here that was really kind of telling was it said that prior to the interview, she gave the agents pieces of clothing that belonged to Christopher that she no longer wanted in her home. I don't think I had seen that anywhere before. It just talks about how she deleted all the text messages that she didn't know he was married because he wasn't wearing a wedding ring. But yet he's already said he told her that he was married. And that when asked about the children, she said they were cute. And if you listen to her voice, like, oh, I thought it was cute. It's really annoying. Her voice is annoying. All of her interviews are annoying. You have to wade through so much bullshit to get to anything, like, of meaning or anything like that. It's terrible. Believe me. Um, she talks about first meeting him around the house in June or July. Basically, she's saying the same story as him, which leads me back to those phone conversations the night before or the night of the murders where they had, like, the 111-minute phone call and stuff. She even texted him and said, you need to delete your messages. She knew more than she acted like she did, and I really think that they kind of rehearsed what their story would be. Next, she goes on to talk about the interview with his dad, the interview with Anne's father. So it's just it's very repetitive in that part. Chapter 15 is called Two Texts with Shanann's Friends. Basically, this is, again, almost like a filler for the book. Going back over the same stuff again. Talks about, you know, the one friend recalling Chris saying, don't call the cops that morning because, you know, he didn't want the cops to show up because he wasn't done with his plan. Then, as you see, it's basically just text messages between Shanann and her friends and stuff like that. And this goes on for several pages. You can read this in the Discovery. You don't have to have the book for that. Chapter 16 is his first official interview. And again, this is all in the Discovery. You can actually watch these videos. He talks about how he told them in this interview that he, you know, confessed he killed Shanann in a blind rage because he believed she had just, you know, or she had just killed both little girls, which we know is not true. Um, he's now admits that he did not feel rage. That was all a lie. He already knew that he was going to do this, so there was no rage. It was already planned. Then again, she transcribes the entire interview, which is super long. Um, chapter 17 is the polygraph and interrogation. And at this point, it talks about how he arrived on the 14th. Uh, or they called him on the 14th, asked him to come to the police station. That's where he went that night at 8 p.m. And had that long interview that we just talked about. And then on the 15th at 11 a.m., he picked up his dad. Then he came to the Frederick Police Department and he did the polygraph. He was told at 4 p.m. that he flunked it. And his reply to that was, okay. So then... They go on to talk about how after he disclosed what had happened, but this story, again, was the one where he said Shanann killed the girls, and he was, you know, angry and enraged, so he killed Shanann. After that is when they start to go worry about recovering the bodies, and she she says this a couple times, like in this chapter, and then the next chapter, which is actually about locating them, and it's just, it's repetitive. But basically, he found the poly and stuff like that. And what he said in that repetitive, just really repetitive. He said, you know, while the agents were out of the room scoring the polygraph, he was watching videos of his girls playing and giggling. Um, they told him he did not pass, and he said, okay. So, again, repetitive. Chapter 18 is the first confession. As you know, the first confession is the one where he said that, like I have told you a couple times, repetitive, that he said that, Shanann killed the girls because she was mad at him for the affair or he wanted a divorce, so he killed her. Um, 
again, is really, really repetitive. He says he got up at 4 a.m., woke her up at 4.15 a.m., but he does say that they had had sex before he killed her. So he slept with her that night and then murdered her. Um, it talks about the dinner, about Shanann noticing the, the charge he had, about the pregnancy. I mean, it's just very repetitive, you know, the same stuff about things the agent asked. So again, he says that he knew Shanann, knew in her heart he was having an affair, but she was waiting for him to admit it. He told his dad when they were about to arrest him, this is the last time, or this would be the last time I see the light of day. So he knew he was screwed. But then again, you're just listening to more stuff. It says that at that point, Ronnie, which is his dad, asked the FBI agent to look at Shanann's Facebook, saying she posted this photo of the doll with the blanket, and maybe this was premeditated. I'm assuming Ronnie did not know that his son was the one that took that picture and sent it. So, yeah, it was premeditated, but she kind of just called your kid out. Then the agent asked about, you know, how they're going to get the girls out. They needed him to show them. Of course, he didn't want to go to that scene. He didn't want any of his coworkers going there. He still wanted to play it off like this didn't happen, and he didn't put his girls there. Um, everyone would form their own opinions about him, and once they figured it out, they're not going to like him anymore. He said his mom had always said Shanann was an unstable person. So it, this is during the confession where he's blaming her. And he even asked his dad after this, why did this happen to me? And his dad told him it wasn't his fault and not to blame himself for it. Funny how the tables end up turning, huh? Chapter 19 is locating Shanann and the girls. This is where they give him the picture of the Survey 319 with the two oil stacks and like the ground. They had already been flying over this with a drone. So they had already located the sheet and what they believe was a grave. So they already knew more than they were telling him they knew. So at that point, they handed him the piece of paper. He wrote B and C on the oil tanks and then S where he buried Shanann. Um, she asked, Cato asked him about the or they asked him about the sheet in the interrogation, and he said that was the sheet she was wrapped in. So he had just thrown it, left it, didn't even think to take that with him. I mean, did he not think they weren't going to find it or that they wouldn't be kind of questioning that? Who knows? Um, the rage I felt was, was she, what she did, I just took over. And again, he admitted he did not have the rage. You see, she just keeps going back and forth. It's, he said he's not a monster and he did not kill his babies, which we find out obviously he did. He said that he buried her about two feet down. It took him about 20 to 30 minutes to dig the grave that Shanann was in. Now, remember, this is all what he saw in police in the first confession where he's still blaming Shanann. So, like I said, it's hard to follow. So, don't, you know. He said that Nikki didn't know his wife was pregnant, but that she did now. And he asked the agents not to put Nikki's name on the news because she's been through enough in her life. So, let's not worry about the fact that you just killed your wife and daughters. But let's just make sure we don't talk about your mistress on the news because we don't want to hurt her. And, you know, at that point, they found the sheets in the trash can that he had thrown away. And they asked Chris in the interview, why did he throw them in the trash? And he said that he used the fitted sheet to wrap Shanann in and take her to the site. And he had the flat sheet pillowcases that were left over. So he didn't know what to do with them. So he just threw them away. That's not suspicious. Next, um, they asked if they were going to find resuscitation marks on the girls. He says, oh, no. Why? Because, you know, your first thought would not be to, you know, try to resuscitate your girls after you supposedly saw your wife strangle them, you would think that the first thing you would have done would be try to revive your children, but apparently not. 
Um, chapter 20 goes over recovering the bodies. Again, very repetitive. It talks about the timeline of when the CBI got there and the, so they had to have, they had, you know, discovered the sheet, which we just talked about and that they could tell that that sheet did match the bedding from the home and that they could tell the ground had been disturbed. They took photographs of the ground. They located the head of a rake in the dirt and they lo located the um, handle of it where the ground was disturbed. So he left the broken rake right beside the holy dug. While they were waiting for further direction, they were advised that he admitted to Killishin Inn and where the bodies were. While, while they, I mean the people that were already at the site. Then it goes into the lengthy detail about how they recovered. Um, it talks about how they had to offload the fuel tanks to get all of the crude oil out of them before they could begin the recovery process. Once they had drained the first one, they looked down from the top. They saw what believed to be a body on the south side of the tank. They then went in and when they got inside, they found that it was the body of a small child. It was a deceased female, later identified as Celeste Watts, covered in oil and wearing a pink nightgown. She was also wearing a pull-up. They noted that she had a lot of skin slippage and they wrapped her in a white sheet and laid her inside of a body bag. But as she was passed through the manway, her left hand was degloved. The skin was basically falling off. So they handed that part of the skin to an officer to keep with the body. Um, they tried to absorb as much of the crude oil as they could with absorbent pads at the scene. The second take was a lot easier to offload because it had much less crude oil in it. They looked through the top. They could see another body that appeared to be face up on the south side of the tank. They went inside. They found the body of the child face up. There was some um, skin slippage and where they had put her on a piece of plywood to pull her out, there was also skin on there. Both bodies were found um, decomposing and covered in crude oil. It's just terrible. I mean, like, of all the ways to dispose of your of a dead person, like, that's just it's terrible. They said that Shanann was so decomposed that they weren't even able to identify her, but they knew it was her because of him saying he put her there. And it's later said that the people who worked on the rescue and recovery of the bodies needed therapy. I'm sure they did. Last chapter I'm going to cover today is chapter 21. It's on the autopsies. You can go online. You can read the discovery. Um, there are several places you can actually read a lot of the autopsy information. It is important to tell you that the photos are sealed. They will not be released as they should not be. There's no reason why anyone needs to see that. Um, but she goes over that these are not the full autopsies, just observations. It says that Shanann appeared to have a large amount of skin slippage and her amniotic sac was protruding from her vaginal area. The doctor examined the amniotic sac and removed Shanann's fetus. The fetus was collected as evidence and sent to the CBI laboratory. Basically, this was done because Chris had alleged the baby wasn't his, so that he was going for DNA testing. Her primary cause of death was asphyxiation due to manual strangulation. So, again, he did strangle her. Then they talk about Bella, who was four years old. This is, it just breaks my heart to even talk about this. She had a large amount of skin slippage. They thought she may have had a broken jaw. They took the x-ray, sent them to a pedi pediatric radiologist who said that it was not a um, break, broken jaw, but it was gas in the area of the jaw from being in those tanks. It appeared that Bella had some scrapes on her buttocks and top of both shoulders. Her, like I said, the frenidium, the skin that connects the top lip to the gum was completely 
torn, there was a huge hole and that her gums and upper lip appeared to be bruised and it appeared she had bit her tongue because she did struggle a lot against her dad. Bella was cause of death, asphyxiation due to manual smothering and there was no bruising or injury to her neck. So no bruising or injury to her neck basically proves that her mother did not strangle her. Next, they did three-year-old Celeste. She was in a pink nightgown and Minnie Mouse underwear in a pull-up. She had a very large amount of skin slippage. She's the one that was degloved as they took her out. She did not have any signs of energy or, I'm sorry, injury or bruising to her neck again. So her mother did not strangle her. Her cause of death was asphyxiation due to manual smothering. They also got in the GPS on Christopher's truck and saw that he went straight to Starby after he had left his home that day. Then she goes on to say that the definition of sane is being of sound mind. And she goes over the definition of it and says it doesn't fit that Chris was sane to have done what he done. But the definition of insane is when you have a state of mind that prevents normal perception of behavior interactions such. So does that mean that he's insane? I don't think he's insane. I think that he is a narcissistic psychopath who is selfish and chose a mistress that he supposedly had only been with for a few weeks over his wife and children who was too selfish to leave who would rather kill them. He was narcissistic to a point that nobody else mattered. All that mattered was him getting what he wanted and he didn't care who he had to get out of the way. He showed no remorse. That is a sign of a psychopath. A psychopath does not exhibit empathy. They have no ability to feel empathy. They don't feel bad for things. They don't feel sympathy for people. Obviously, he had no empathy or he could never have committed this act. So, yes, he is, he, he's, let's not say insane because he knows. The difference between sane and insane in a legal court of law is, did you know what you were doing at that time was wrong? If you could not, you know, if your brain did not allow you to know what you were doing was wrong, you're insane. You can plead insanity because you, you had no conception of right and wrong. He knew what he was doing was wrong because he tried to cover it. So the insanity thing, she could take that on somewhere. Anyways, she said that wasn't this evil presence that was around him and gives a definition of being possessed. I'm sorry. Whatever. Not falling for that. I mean, the devil made me do it, right? So that's going to be the end of this segment of episode two of the letters from Christopher. I will be doing the final one within the next day or so and post it where we'll go over the ending of it. At that that point of the book is where he talks about, she goes over the evidence, reflections from him, some of what he said to Cato, the arrest and plea and sentencing. He was sentenced to three life sentences plus I believe 82 years. Um, they'll go over the family and what his prison life is like. Chapter 27 is, you know, the final confession, which we've pretty much already heard all of. And then chapter 28, which I didn't really know if I was going to include in this, was basically his personal letters because I can't really read those word for word because of copyright laws. But it's also the epilogue that he wrote himself. So we'll go over that in a day or two. Um, I hope you enjoyed this video. Feel free to share it. Please like this channel and subscribe. And stay tuned for tonight. The Ted Bundy specials come on and we will definitely be covering those. So have a good night.